So we're in a, a series of series, if you remember where we started. Um, let me see if I can explain exactly where we are in this series of series. We started out three weeks ago introducing a series based on Phil Strout's three-part vision for the vineyard as he, as he revealed it in his acceptance speech as the new national director of the vineyard movement. Those three parts were presence, proclamation, and practical. We decided, in turn, uh, that we would approach each of these three topics as a mini-series within the series, which we introduced two weeks ago and started last week with the distinctiveness of being a people of the presence, making us the people of God, a people unique from all other people in the earth because he that is God is present with us. That's the uniqueness of who we are. I stated last week that I saw three basic motivators that would compel us as people of the presence. They are faith, calling, and desire, which has now become our micro-series within the mini-series of the series of series. Okay, you all got that? Now you all know where you are, right? I am serious. <laughs> now I said all this just to demonstrate how deep we can really go on the topic of his presence. Because it is both fundamental and vital to who we are as a community of believers and where we are going as a movement. So as I've quoted each week so far, I'll quote again this week, the words of Moses to God. In Exodus 33:15. Moses said to him, that is God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Let's pray. We echo that today, O oh God, from our hearts, from our minds, from the depths of our circumstances and our situations, some good and exciting, some bad and overwhelming, and some of them weigh us down, some of, uh, some of them cause us to fly like eagles. But Lord, we don't want to go anywhere unless you lead us. We don't want to move at all unless you're moving. We want to be where you are. We want to be found in your presence, knowing you and being known by you. And we can show the world around us there is a God, a God who you can know, a God who you can love, a God who loves you. So we invite you, Holy Spirit, this morning, come as the presence, the manifest presence of the living God into this place. Fill our hearts, our minds, our lives with more of Jesus today. We ask this for the glory of his name, the expansion of his kingdom, and the well-being of souls. Amen. So this week, in our micro-series, I want to talk about the presence of and the power of the calling, the presence and the power of the calling. 
more specifically, the calling into leadership. Now, make no mistake about it, if there's a calling on your life, then you're called to lead. If you're a man, a woman, a child who is faithfully walking in your calling and pursuing God's presence to enable the effectual outworking of that calling, then inevitably you will find someone following you. That's what makes a leader. If you look over the shoulder, there's no one there, you're not leading. Mom's dad, you're leaders. Your children are following you. Christian friend, you're a leader. Your neighbors are watching you. They're watching your behavior. They're looking to see how you do it, how you respond. You're leading. I don't know too many things more compelling or influentially more powerful than an individual who is faithfully walking in their calling. Well, at the same time, I know few things more destructive than an individual who is obviously called of God, has demonstrated that calling to the point of influencing others, and then abuses that power of that calling for their own gain or desires. It's really a double-edged sword. The calling of God, in order to be most effective, must be kept in proper perspective by the individual who is called. And one of the biggest mistakes we make is that we think we are called to do when in fact we are called to be. Let me give you this from my own observations as I pursued God's call for the past 36 years. It is simply this. All that you have done or accomplish will be eternally solidified or completely undone by who you have become as you have done or accomplished those things. In other words, your character and integrity mean far more than your accomplishments or your ability. So here's the real power of the calling. The call of God should not compel us to merely do deeds or influence people. Even if those deeds and that influence is good, the real power of the call of God is that it continually compels us to his presence. Continually compels us to his presence. Watch Moses. Exodus 33. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Now what that tells me is this was ordinary daily traffic. The tent of meeting was not exclusive 
to Moses or to the priesthood. Anyone who sought the Lord could go there. There was some traffic going on day to day in somewhere between four to six million people hanging out in the desert. You know, there must have been a well-worn path. It was not unusual to see someone going out to the tent of meeting. But listen to this. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. Now listen, all day long, people are coming and going to that tent. But when Moses headed for the tent, everybody stopped what they were doing and watched until he went in. Why? Because they knew what was coming next. Mm -hmm. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would, would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. Now, do you know what the pillar of cloud is? It's the presence of God. The presence of God would come down from heaven in the form of a cloud and stand. When Moses went into the tent, everybody wanted to see that. Everybody was watching for that. And the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. This is the impact of leadership. It causes others to worship God, if it's in pursuit of the presence of God. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please Show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And God said to Moses, my presence, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. Does anyone know what Moses' calling was? Was it to deliver Israel from Egyptian bondage? Or to lead Israel to the promised land? I mean, awesome. Either one of them, awesome stories. I mean, read the story in Exodus. Wow. You know, big time stuff. But do you see any of that going on in the scriptures we just read? What we do see is people being moved by Moses' movement. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. We do see people worshiping in response to God's response to Moses' movement. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. And we do see an individual, Joshua, 
being impacted in such a way as to begin to pursue God's presence for himself. And Moses turned again into the camp. His assistant, Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Why was he hanging out? The residue. Man, the residue. You know, God was here. His presence was here. Joshua was not doing it by calling, but by desire. Moses' example had birthed in Joshua something distinct that belonged to Joshua, not to Moses. But his leadership, his pursuit of the presence of God birthed that in Joshua. And we're going to look at desire next week. All of these were a direct influence of the calling of God on Moses' life. So what was Moses' calling? To discover that, we have to go back to an earlier time in the Exodus story. But let me fill in the gaps of Moses' life first for those of you who may not know the whole story. Moses was born of Hebrew parents in Egypt at a time when Pharaoh, who was the ruler of Egypt, because he was afraid the Hebrews would become too numerous and rebel against his rule, ordered that all the newborn male babies were to be killed. Birthing in, in those times were by midwives, Egyptian midwives, and he ordered all the midwives, if the baby is born as a male, kill it. If it's a female, let it live. So Moses' mom is pregnant. She's time for her to deliver her baby, and sure enough, here comes this baby boy, little Moses. And the midwife looks at him and the scripture says he was just beautiful, beautiful to look at. In other words, there was something so unique, something so special about this baby that she decided to disregard the order of the king, the order of Pharaoh, and to spare this baby's life. She didn't kill the baby. Now, of course, you can't hide a baby for too long, right? And it came to the point where, you know, mom had to do something. So she comes up with this ingenious plan, which if you're a mom or a dad with a young baby, uh, I challenge you to consider it ingenious. It would scare me to death. But she makes a wicker basket and lines it with tar and puts her baby in there and drops it into the river. Now, you get arrested for that today. Believe me. You can't even leave your baby in the car. right. But God was at work. And that baby drifts down that river and ends up at the wading pool of the daughter of Pharaoh. And she plucks him out of the water and said, this is my son. And takes Moses into the Pharaoh's palace as her own son. Now, the implications of that are huge for that day. That means he was educated in the best schools. He was taught military tactics. He was historically known to be uh, quite a successful general. He had all the opportunities, the best opportunities, afforded to a young man in his day. 
But at some point in time, he became aware of his biological heritage, and he sees an Egyptian man uh, beating up another Hebrew, goes over and he kills the Egyptian, buries the body in the sand, and of course, Pharaoh had plenty of secret police and found out, and Moses takes off across the desert, ends up in the backside of the wilderness living with Bedouins and marries a Bedouin girl and becomes a Bedouin shepherd for the next 40 years. Until one day, Exodus 3 began to be written in the heart of God. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Now, do you think that was miraculous? It wasn't. We went to Sinai. We went to the monastery of St. Catherine. And one of the things they have at the monastery, it's about 20 feet up on, on a flat roof of part of one of their buildings, is the plant that's natural to the Sinai. It's a large plant that exudes a methane gas. And if the temperature gets hot enough, it will spontaneously combust, but the plant will not burn. So people go to St. Catherine sometimes in, in the summer to wait to see the bush burn and not be consumed. So the miracle is not the fact that the bush was on fire and not burning. The miracle was in the fact that God's presence was at the burning bush. God took the natural, ordinary occurrence of that region and caused it to be miraculous by his presence. God will take the mundane things of your life, the ordinary day-to-day -day living things of your life, and if his presence is in them, they become miraculous. The things you thought you couldn't do, suddenly you'll find yourself doing. The success you thought you'd never have, you'll find that suddenly you have. The prosperity you've been looking for, suddenly you'll be rich on the inside and be able to acquire to yourself the things that you need to live a rich and fruitful life in the presence of God. Do you understand that? Do you believe that for your life? We need the presence of Jesus Christ. Moses said, I'll turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Why? Presence is there. Everything changes when his presence is there. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. God knows your suffering. 
He knows what you're going through. He knows what you're living day to day in your life. And he so desires for you to call forth his presence to yourself so that you don't have to be stuck there. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God said to Moses, I will be with you. My presence will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. See, it's all about the presence. So did you see it? Moses calling. Moses isn't called to deliver Israel from bondage or to lead them to the promised land. God said he had come down to do that. So what is Moses called to? God called him out of the bush. Moses, Moses said to him, here am I. I will be with you. You shall serve God on this mountain. Moses is called to God himself. He's not called to a task. He's called to a presence. He's called into the presence of the living God so he can accomplish God's will, so he can do a task. But the calling is to God himself. God has called you to himself. He has plans for your life, good plans, plans to prosper you, not to see you run down and to run over with life. He's called you to himself so that you can excel and be the best that you can be in Christ. He's called you to himself so that your neighbor's life and your workmate's life can be changed by the impact of Christ's presence in your life. God has called you to himself. Lord, what do you want me to do? I want you to be near to me is what it's saying. Come close to me. Moses is called to God himself, and he knows it. He absolutely knows it. And, is, and it is this calling that Moses pursues, when he, and heaven and earth responds. We're going back to that scripture again. When Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up. When Moses went out to the tent, the cloud would descend. When Moses moved, heaven and earth moved with him. That is true godly leadership. It's leadership in pursuit of the presence. And if you're in pursuit of the presence, you will move heaven and earth because heaven and earth will move for you. We see the same thing in the life and ministry of Jesus. And Luke records it in the fourth chapter. Jesus is in the synagogue and he says this about himself. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. His presence is all over me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news 
to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The presence of God was all over Jesus. And how often do you read in the gospel accounts of Jesus going off alone to pray? And when he comes back, powerful miracles and healings take place. And Jesus fully understands that the power of the calling emanates from the intimacy of the presence he has in prayer with the Father. He says so in John 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. Nothing. How, how much can we do on our own? But only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. Do you see the carryover of that in application of Jesus' relationship with you? Isn't that what he promised us? Greater things than these shall you do? Because I go to the Father. Jesus wants us in relationship with him just as he was in relationship with the Father. Just read uh, John chapter 16, 17, and, and read his prayer, his intimate prayer. Father, that they would, you and, you and me and me and you and them and us. I mean, what a profound invitation to be in the presence, the living presence of the living God. The ability to maintain the power of the calling is in knowing your place in it at any given moment in time. And here's a little rule of thumb to keep in mind as you pursue this. You cannot own what belongs to God. You cannot own what belongs to God. You can only use it to accomplish his will and his purposes. The degree to which you understand this will determine your greatness within the kingdom of God. Listen to how John the Baptist understood it in John chapter 3. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, he's speaking about Jesus here, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Uh, here's the key. He must increase. I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit. He gives his presence. 
without measure. This dynamic was well understood in the early church in Acts 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms, that's money, of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive some money. Peter directed his gaze at him, and as did John, and said, look at us. He fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. What was he expecting? Money, right? Okay. Uh, here comes the rug out from under the crippled guy, right? I have no silver and gold. <laughs> well, what'd you stop for? Hmm? But what I do have, what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and entering the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Now that must have been quite a sight, don't you think? And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for money. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man, the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. For what reason? That the times of refreshing... Do you think they were looking for a time of refreshing? Read some of the history of Jerusalem or Israel. First... Through sec first century B.C. through second century A.D. The number of crucifixions that took place on a weekly basis. At any given day, there were a thousand crosses along the roadways of Israel. Men hanging on crosses, crucified by the Romans. Do you think they desired refreshing? You see, Peter had more to offer than just healing to a lame man. 
but the lame man became a doorway for God to bring about his purposes to a whole people gathered at his temple, coming to the tent of meeting, hoping to meet a God who can bring them refreshing. And Peter says, what I have, I'm going to give you. The times are refreshing, are coming from the presence of the Lord. From the presence of the Lord. Can I say to you today, times of refreshing are coming. The presence of the Lord is, is just ripe. Any of you get uh, David Wilkerson's newsletter, monthly newsletter? Do you see what it was this month? Uh, David was killed in an auto accident a couple of years ago, but his friend, his son, is writing the newsletter. And this month's newsletter is a proclamation. The proclamation is this. This is the year of his presence. This is the year of his presence. I got to tell you, the Spirit of God is speaking the same thing throughout the church. This is the year of his presence. Times of refreshing are coming. Let's work while it's still day. Let's check out. Did we, we had a word about oil today. Huh? You remember those virgins? What's your oil lamp look like? Times of refreshing are when you get to fill a lamp. Times of refreshing when his presence comes is when, when your wick gets trimmed. You know, I can't trim my own wick. I don't see what, what's going on in my own life like he sees. But when his presence comes, I got to tell you, my wick is going to get trimmed. He's going to cut some things out of my life. He's going to improve me so that I burn all the brighter when he lights me up. Times of refreshing are coming, church. The presence of God is on the way. I know of no account in the scriptures that move me more powerfully when considering the impact of the presence on an individual's life than the story of a little girl, maybe 12 to 15 years old, in the little hill village of Nazareth, who sometime after becoming engaged by an arranged marriage is confronted by an angelic visitation. Luke records it in the first chapter of his gospel. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, of his kingdom, there shall be no end. Do you know that this statement, this hope, had been alive in the heart of every woman since Eve who had a knowledge of the living God? When God drove them out of the garden, he 
cursed certain aspects of their life, but left promises behind. And for Eve, it was this, that someday there'd come forth a son who would crush the head of the serpent. And Jewish women understood it was a prophecy of a coming Messiah who would rescue them, who would bring times of refreshing, who would pull them out from the domination and abuse of of the nations. And every woman pregnant for the first time would pray, Lord, let it be a son and let this be the Messiah. Would I be the one who would bring forth the Messiah to Israel? For thousands of years, even Eve, when she bore Cain, said, the Lord has given me a man. That statement in the Hebrew says, the Lord has sent his deliverer, his promised deliverer. She thought he had come that quick. And here's this little 12 to 15-year-old girl. She's hearing from an angel, you're the one. You're the one God has chosen. You're going to fulfill this promise from 10,000 years ago. It's coming down on you now. How do you handle that? She went to what she knew. Listen to her response. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? The natural order of things says this cannot happen. I haven't had sex. How can this be? But remember what the presence does. It takes the natural order of things and causes it to be miraculous. It takes a common occurrence in the desert, a a bush that exudes methane and causes it to be a, a miraculous encounter with the living God for a man who delivers a whole nation. And here, this little girl asks the only question she can ask. How can this be? I'm still a virgin. I haven't had sex. And there's a miraculous answer. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born of you will be called the Holy One, the Son of God. Oh, okay. All right. That's cool. All right. Sounds simple enough, right? Well, let's see what it might really look like as we dissect the angel's response word by word from the Greek. The holy, Strong's number 40, hagios, It is the sacred, pure, blameless, awful, as in the sense of awe-inspiring. Ghosts, Strong's number 4151, Numa, breath as in a blast, literally the breath of God, shall come, Strong number 1904, Epicomai, to arrive, attack, and influence. Upon, Strong's number 1909, Epi, a superimposition of time, place, and order. Power, Strong's number 1411, dunamis, a violently wonderful work of miraculous power. Highest, Strong's number 5310, hupasistos, the supreme God in his full masculine sense. Overshadow, Strong's number 1982, epischiazo, to envelop in a haze of brilliancy. So here's the Dickacoin paraphrase of the angelic response to Mary. How shall this be? The holy, pure, 
awe-inspiring breath of God will blast you with an attack of influence which will arrive with a superimposition upon your time, place, and the order of your life with a violently wonderful work of miraculous power as the supreme God envelops you in a haze of brilliance that is his masculinity. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of you shall be called the Son of God. Oh my. Oh my. His presence is coming. That's all he had to say. His presence is coming. And when his presence comes, the natural becomes supernatural, infused with the presence. Now here is revealed the key to unlock the power of the presence within the call of God in your life. Listen to Mary's response now. If I heard that from an angel, I'd probably drop on the ground. You know, like all those prophets, like a dead man, wait for the coal, hopefully. (laughs) Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. God, whatever you want to do, do it to me. Whatever it takes for your will to be done. Let me be the vessel. I'll endure whatever you ask me to endure. I'll accept and believe whatever you speak to me. Whatever you tell me is going to happen, I'm open to it. God, do it. Do it. Do it. I'm called. I'm your servant. Do what you will. Same key used by Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he faced the cross. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And angels came to him and strengthened him. The power of the calling will take us places beyond our belief. Places where the impossible is possible and the undoable is accomplished. A place where the presence of God becomes our desire. 